This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, three students and I interview Dr. Robert Talese, W. Alton Jones, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Talese is author or co-author of 10 books in political philosophy and pragmatism. His most recent is Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Today on the Annex, why our lives are dominated by politics and what to do about it. Stay with us. Well, welcome, Dr. Sleese. It's so good to have you on the Annex. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, we are also joined by, as I said, three students from my honor section of Introduction to Sociology, Megan, Alexis, and Grayson. Uh, just as a a way of introducing those students, I'll just let folks know that a small group of us decided to read Overdoing Democracy this semester, and we're all thrilled that you're joining us to discuss the book. Well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here to talk about it with you. I think this line of work can really help sociologists think through the problem of polarization and the saturation of everyday life with politics in new ways. And as you probably know, many sociologists are well acquainted with figures like Jane Addams and John Dewey. So your argument about democracy should be important to them. So I just want to give our students a moment to introduce themselves and say hello to all of our listeners out in podcast land. Alexis, why don't we start with you and Megan? Hi, I'm Megan. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Um, I really had a blast reading this book, and I'm just happy for this. <laughs> Hi, my name is Alexis Pereira. I really enjoyed reading your book, and I'm super excited to be part of a podcast. And this is Grayson. This is going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to put you on the spot, Dr. Chalice. Fabulous. That's what we do here on the NX in the kindest and most gentle way possible. Okay, well, Dr. Chalice, as I mentioned, you're a political philosopher who focuses on democracy. When did it start to occur to you that democracy itself could be the problem. I mean, your book is called Overdoing Democracy, so there must be some issue issue there. You know, so when did you realize or come to understand that the call was coming inside the house? <laughs> That's a good way to put it, Dan. So, you know, I've worked on democracy all of my professional life, in addition to some other things. And, you know, it, you can read and work for a long time in democratic theory in the broad sense across, you know, political science, sociology, history, philosophy, and even in some quarters of academic law, you can read a lot of people theorizing democracy who hold either explicitly or implicitly that because democracy is so precious and so important and so obviously a necessary condition for realizing other things of value, more must always be better. And it began to strike me that that's an odd principle to hold about values of other kinds. I mean, you know, we have lots of examples, uh, just even in, uh, you know, sort of everyday vernacular about overdoing good things. You know, like, what's what's a workaholic? Uh, you're calling somebody a workaholic. You're not saying that their job isn't worth doing. You're saying that they're pursuing their work in a way that is somehow unraveling or crowding out of their life other things that are also of value. So, it struck me just as a philosophical matter that when it comes to democracy, more is always better seemed to be a kind of mantra, sort of just a common presumption. And I, you know, for a long time, I thought that was puzzling. But then I, I think this is in the book, you know, I had a, an odd encounter uh, with a friend about Thanksgiving. 
<laughs> she was very, she was very uh, anxious about Thanksgiving because of the political climate in the country. This was just following the election in 2016, or maybe it was 2015. Um, but anyway, so it was leading up. You know, she was worried that politics was going to ruin this occasion for getting together with her family, and it sort of struck me like, wow, you know. What kind of thing could ruin a whole holiday whose sole purpose is for people to get together and, you know, eat food <laughs> and socialize? You know, what, what kind of thing could make that a site of uh, anxiety and angst and, 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 and turmoil? And she had made me aware of the fact that there's a whole genre of op-ed and opinion writing uh, that shows up in, you know, showed up last November even about, you know, how to navigate the weird politics uh, over Thanksgiving dinner. And she had told me that, you know, she had read a couple of these op-eds and, you know, they were giving good advice and, you know, things like don't raise your voice, you know, remain calm, don't call anybody names, you know, just all the things that would be sort of commonsensical. And, you know, I suggested to her, I, you know, I, I, innocently, I, I suppose that's the right word. I mean, sort of sincerely, I just said, well, couldn't you just send an email out to your family who's coming for dinner and just say, um, we're not going to talk about politics? Not because we need to bracket that off, just because, you know, aren't there other things to talk about? You know, politics is important, but it's not the only thing that's important. Aren't there better things that we could be doing than, you know, you can talk about politics anytime. You know, maybe we can do something else. And uh, she looked at me like I just made some very bizarre suggestion. <laughs> I said, oh, no, you can't do that. Like, oh, well, why not? <laughs> why not just say, you know, we're not trying to suppress political differences. It's just like politics isn't what we're getting together to do on Thanksgiving. Why don't we, you know, there are other things to talk about. Let's talk about those other things. And so, you know, that realization that politics had in this particular person's case, which I suspect have since come to realize is not, uh, not uncommon, that politics had sort of taken control of or shaped this social occasion so that politics itself was central to it and inescapable. And any suggestion that you could have the dinner without the politics was seen and heard, received by her as a sort of alien, maybe even incoherent thought. So I started realizing that. And then, you know, as I just started digging around and felt like reading these columns, for example, I was like, wow, this is a, this is a thing. I, I guess I hadn't realized it myself. I have Thanksgiving just with me and my wife. You know, I, like, you know, I hadn't realized that this was such a thing. And so it just struck me that sort of value insight that, you know, in with respect to most other things of value, we recognize that they have their place and that their goodness is not being denied when you say they have their place, but their goodness is contingent on their being kept in their place. It's like, yeah, nobody thinks that about democracy. Well, why not? But, you know, that's sort of how I started thinking along the lines that wound up turning into the book. That's super interesting. I think it shares with the discipline of sociology the idea that you know the common wisdom can always be challenged or critiqued, and there's there's always something deeper to be analyzed when it comes to how folks are thinking about and processing their daily experience. And so often, you know, for for us, the things that people are not aware of are those larger social, structural, institutional 
you know, processes and, and practices and even traditions and things like that that aren't made problematic by everyday life. One of the things that your discussion brings to mind is your concept of saturation, right? The way that many areas of our lives are saturated by politics, and that often gets framed as sort of red versus blue or progressive versus conservative or liberal versus conservative and, and so on, and how just normal everyday practices of like going grocery shopping or getting a coffee in the morning or where you decide to, you know, buy your clothes or your shoes or any sort of any kind of consumer purchase is is almost coded in this binary, right? And that you're making statements about your political affiliation by, you know, whether you go to this coffee shop or that coffee shop. You know, this was another, you know, one of the nice things about pursuing academic interests or intellectual interests is that, you know, you discover things. And so all the stuff in the book about saturation was something I discovered. I, I by discovered, I don't mean that I found it out and nobody else knew it. I mean, I hadn't realized that there was this entire longstanding literature in sociology, in uh, the area of um, political science, it's sometimes just called political psychology, certainly social psychology, about sort of two phenomena that are sort of intertwined in the saturation phenomena. One is that the sort of what we might think of as the centering of political identity. You know, in the United States today, over the last 30, 40 years, our sense of who we are has become much more tightly tied to our partisan identity than it was in the past. So, you know, we used to think of ourselves or sort of locate ourselves socially by means of things like our profession, maybe in some cases our ethnicity, you know, this is all contingent on lots of things. But in in the United States today, it's become much more common than ever in the history of the country, as far as, you know, we can tell from when we started looking at these things, that partisan identity has become increasingly central to how we understand not just our political ideas, but our lives. That is, our lifestyles have become more and more centered around our understanding of our partisan identities in ways that, you know, aren't tied so directly to actual ideas about what the law should be or what the government should be doing. That is that partisanship has become about lifestyle rather than about what we might think of as sort of overtly political, like what should the tax rate be? <laughs> you know, that is. And so what that means in part is that we think we're a lot more divided on those sort of rubber hits the road policy questions in this country than we are. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at actual policy preferences, citizens of the United States are no more divided now than they were in the 80s. Uh, In fact, on a lot of issues about policy, um, partisan divisions have shrunk. What has uh, exaggerated, intensified, and increased is partisan animosity. We dislike each other more, despite the fact that we don't really disagree more. Uh, That is that the animosity has gone through the roof when really the the things about which we disagree have kind of either stayed the same or or gotten a little bit less severe. So the centering of partisan identity is, is one sort of part of the saturation point. The other part, and you know, separate from the centering of partisan identity is a kind of upshot of the centering of partisan identity. It turns out 
that in all kinds of ways, um, it's really handy for political parties, campaign managers, candidates, as well as corporations and firms and other people who want to advertise things to you. It's really handy for them when they know that living in a certain place, owning a certain kind of house in a particular part of the country means that you are very likely to have a range of preferences about all kinds of other things, right? So if you drive the pickup truck and you get the coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, we don't have to worry about advertising to you uh, for Whole Foods. We'll put the Cracker Barrel advertisements on your favorite TV show. By the way, the, the stats about who voted for Obama versus McCain in that uh, second Obama run. If you live within a certain distance from a Cracker Barrel, the chances that you voted a Republican go way up. If you live that same distance from a uh, from a Whole Foods, the chances that you voted Democrat go way up. So the part, the centering of partisan identity sort of makes certain strategic decisions on the part of corporations, other kinds of advertisers, but also political candidates, the managers of campaigns and their parties makes things sort of strategically kind of simple for them because you know, the way to get you interested in the candidate is to appeal to your sense of who you are. By the way, you know this, you know, if you're, if you're a voter and paying half attention, you know that this is the, especially at the national level, the candidate's job is to make you feel like he or she is one of you, right? Is, is, is like you in the relevant respects. And if it all comes neatly tied in a package so that, there's the liberal stores and the liberal products and the liberal movies and the liberal preferences and the liberal attitudes about child rearing and the liberal attitudes about family. And then there's the conservative attitudes and dispositions about all those things, which are markedly different. Well, then, you know, you've got a real clear set of strategic choices to, to make as a campaign manager or a candidate or an advertiser. And so when it's all packaged together, it's really handy, uh, which is why, by the way, politicians like this. <laughs> They're in favor of it. It's like, well, I can figure out who my voters are. Last point about this, because it interlocks with something that, you know, the political scientists have known for a long time. And, uh, you know, I think the, the average citizen is known for a long time. You know, especially at the national level, things get a little bit murkier at the more local levels. But at the national level, politics is not about convincing people about your platform. Politics is not about changing minds and winning people over. Politics at the national level is about extracting behavior, whether it be donating or canvassing or phone banking and especially voting. So that politics is really about getting people to act in particular ways. And that has nothing to do with convincing people who are not already on your side. It has to do with motivating the people who are on your side to get involved. That's where the game is. You don't have to change anybody's mind. It's just a turnout. It's a numbers game. It's about turnout. And so you stick all these pieces together. Like, whoa, we've got two opposed lifestyles, as it were. And they are fundamentally opposed, mainly in the sense that they think nasty thoughts about the others. <laughs> they don't like each other. And so if you can position as a candidate or as a campaign, position yourself so that you amplify the threat or call to mind the threat of the other side. If you can 
demonize the people on the other side, if you can stoke resentments about the fact that there are people on the other side who want all the things that are going to ruin the country and they're going to destroy democracy. Well, you've got at your fingertips then as a candidate uh, or as a campaign manager or as a party, real potent motivational levers. Because here's another sad fact about human beings, right? A really good way to get human beings to do things is through resentment, anger, indignation. Like all the negative emotions are, mo- are more, more potent motivationally than, you know, feeling warm and fuzzy inside. Feeling warm and fuzzy inside makes you want to just like, you know, hug people and sit on the couch and feel happy, right? Indignation is the thing that gets you engaging in behavior of the kind that candidates need you to engage in. And so last point on this. This is not going away from the, no matter how, it's a very, by, by the way, popular message among politicians that the country is too polarized. We, you know, remember Biden's inauguration. Unity, unity, unity. We have to see each other again. We have to hear each other again. We have to listen to each other. We're not enemies. We must not be enemies. Remember President Lincoln. Uh, that's all really potent, but it's so valuable to the political candidates to have the citizenry polarized in the ways that I describe in the book, because it just makes campaigning easier. You can have a major party, as we did in the last presidential election, not even articulate a platform, because after all, it's not about the policies. It's about the lifestyle, the personality, and the ways in which your emotions, particularly your negative emotions towards the other side, can be stoked. I think that's that's really fascinating. One emotion that you didn't pinpoint is fear, right? There's anger in there and there's fear. So, you know, a lot of the messages that that I hear in this space is if we don't do this, if we don't fight, if we don't donate money, if we don't knock on doors, if we don't mobilize, then this terrible thing is going to happen. You know, those those people who, you know, believe in, you know, corporal punishment of their children, for example, or they believe that public schools ought to have required Bible curriculum. I mean, just, I'm just making stuff up, but, but basically, you know, whatever it is that the audience they think is not going to, not going to like and violates their sort of deep sense of what is, you know, morally good and pure and true and right about the country and our agreements, right. is going to be, you know, fundamentally altered by the other side. Yeah. Think of the Biden campaign slogan. This is a fight for the soul of America. Right now, of course, you you had a a more overt and I think volatile on January sixth when Trump said, "If you don't fight, you're not going to have a country anymore." Right now, those are two different expressions, and they're not morally equivalent as expressions. But the messaging is not that different, right? The other side wins; the country goes away. We lose the soul of America. We lose the country. That's real potent stuff. The same people who are selling us cars and toothpaste and peanut butter are also advising these candidates. And, you know, they know how to tap into people's affective vulnerabilities in ways that can dependably extract behavior. All right. Well, I want to actually have Grayson step in. And Grayson, I want you, would you ask your first question? Yes, absolutely. Okay, Dr. Chalice, my first question for you. How do you propose we place less emphasis on politics, given that the structure itself produces policies, laws, 
and systems that directly affect the quality and or outcome of people's lives? Yeah, so that's that is the question. And um let me make one clarification. Not, not that there's anything confused about the question you asked, Grayson, but just to make sure that I get this part on the table, right? Because, you know, the, the Overdoing Democracy book, the, the argument of the book is not politics is small potatoes, don't sweat the small stuff, you know, uh, you know, don't get so excited, you know, it's just politics. Right? No, the message of the book is not that politics is unimportant or that it's not worth getting excited over. It is worth getting excited over and it is really important. The argument rather is that it can't be the only thing that matters because if we treat politics as the only thing that matters, we make a couple of errors, but let me just highlight two. Politics is the only thing that matters. We'll have a hard time answering the question, why does it matter? Right? Politics is the only thing that matters. It still seems to me coherent. I'm a philosopher. Coherence is a, is a pretty good bar, is a pretty important bar to meet. It still seems to me like a perfectly coherent question to the everything is politics, politics is all that matters kind of proponent to just say, okay, why? And it's, it sounds to me an error of a conceptual kind say, well, politics matters because politics. Like, well, I mean, the way I just said it is a, is a sort of an idiomatic expression say, because politics is sort of shorthand because of all the things that go on in politics. Well, what goes on in politics? Well, governments with extraordinary degrees of power and symbols of power and instruments of power get to impose rules and policies and laws on people that are then enforced. People get punished for not complying <laughs> all the while where we're supposed to be a democracy. So we're all equals around here, but still we get pushed around and the government gets to say, well, because it's democracy that's pushing you around, you're not merely being pushed around. There's a long story uh, in democratic theory about how to make sense of all that. We don't have to go into but here's the thing. The reason why politics, it seems to me, is so important is that when politics is done well, when things are going well in a democracy, the social conditions, the political arrangements around us are constructed, are running in such a way that we can make art. We can, you know, we can make art, we can care for for people, we can enter into relations of deep moral attachment with particular others, right? right? Like, you know, spouses and siblings and, and friends, and say, you know, because the political world is structured in the ways that a democracy tries to structure them, I don't have to at every moment of my life, walk around like Winston Smith in Orwell's 1984. I don't have to constantly worry about whether the fact that I'm wearing a certain kind of shoe, watching a certain kind of movie, listening to a certain kind of song, befriending a certain person like Julia in the novel, whether that's going to send all the wrong political, you know, put off the, send up the, the red flags with the party. That seems to me like a real fundamental difference between a constitutional democratic society and one that's not a democracy, is that in a constitutional de- democratic society, part of the value of the political order is that it makes possible for us, 
lives devoted to other things, right? Now, we are citizens, so we always have to be, we are always responsible for our politics. That is that, you know, I, I'm a believer in the, what some people say, kind of mythological view that, you know, we are, you know, a democracy is a community of self-governing equals. We are the government, right? You know, I believe that as a philosopher. Um, but the reason why it's so important to get that stuff right is because, well, there are goods and values and pursuits and objectives that are important, that can be important, that can enrich a life in which politics just can't be, if, if, if you want a friendship, you know, politics just can't be the right, can't, can't be part of it, or at least can't be central to it. Just imagine, think of your friend. Imagine somebody who's, think of your best friend in the world, saying, I just, I just found out who you voted for. We're not friends anymore. Now, you would think, I think upon receiving that message, well, you're a jerk. That stinks. But, you know, you would think all kinds of thoughts. But I also think you would you would have the following thought. You weren't really my friend ever anyway. <laughs> right. If finding out who I voted for is the thing that breaks the relation, if that's the sine qua non of being my friend, you don't know what friendship is. Right. You don't say your friendship is about a range of pursuits and commonalities and differences and and shared things right to make politics the the make or break thing for a friendship is really to say oh, it's not really a it's not a friendship in uh you know in the deeper senses aristotle's got you know th three different four different kinds of friendship um we're not going to get into that but it's just like well that's just wasn't a deep friendship in the first place it's similar, like, you know, if somebody said to you, give me $20 or we're not friends anymore. Like, well, I don't know. Like, what are you, like, you're 12 years old? That's, that's, that's what a kid says who doesn't know what friendship is, right? Similarly, I think the same thing is true of politics. So to get to your question, uh, uh, Grayson, the important part is, uh, of the argument is that if we want politics to go well, if we want democracy to produce better results, if we want democracy to be enriched in its authenticity, in its legitimacy, we have to care a lot and tend to democracy. We have to do our job as citizens, but we have to do something else. We have to do something in addition. In a way, the overdoing democracy proposal is a more demanding view of what living together as equals requires of us. We've got to do all the citizenship stuff. So we've got to be good John Dewey, Jane Addams, Jean-Jacques Rousseau participants in the shared project of self-governing. We've got to do all that. So I'm on board, you know, with a heavily deliberative and participatory conception of democracy. But we got to do something in addition. What's that? We got to find ways to cultivate relations with others that don't have to be especially deep, you know. We just have to find ways to cultivate relationships with others where politics is not central, where politics is just out of, you know, it's just, it's just not part of the relation. And let me just say one very quick thing, and this is the last point, about why. And I don't think I put it this way in the book, but, you know, you give talks, you hear critics, you start to learn better ways to formulate things. So let me try this way. You know, it's really important for us to preserve room in social life for interacting with others where we can see one another's virtues, where we can see one another behave well, admirably, commendably, where we can see one another in the, as a responsible parent, right? 
a caring neighbor, right? Where we can see one another at, our, at, at one another's best in a way in which we're just not aware what their politics are so that we can't say, Oh, fellow liberal, of course he's a nice guy. Of course he cares about his kids. Of course he's a responsible coworker. Of course he's a dependable, honest student. Of course he's a responsible academic, right? Because we decided that, yeah, we don't want to tie our conception of the minimally decent person, even, to our conception of partisan ally. And we don't want to tie our conception of jerk, right, to our conception of partisan foe. But saturation is a force that renders us, vul- renders us vulnerable to those, those kinds of categorizations. And that's not only, I think, a bad way to interact with people. I think it is, right? It's bad for democracy, right? You know, the people who lose in a democracy are not therefore your subjects, right? right? Your guy wins. That doesn't mean now that Joe Biden gets to be king for four years, Right. The people who don't want did not vote for Biden, don't like Biden, don't you know, would have preferred somebody else to be president. These are people who remain your equals, no matter who you voted for. They don't you know, they're not just subjects of legislation or, you know, um, objects that now have to comply with the rules. They remain co-authors of the rules, even when you think they've got bonkers political ideas. Well, on the basis of what can you see them as your equals if right? If every person is that you encounter is categorized, sort of stereotyped by you as partisan ally, therefore virtuous, good, kind, responsible, all the good stuff, partisan foe, therefore, right, a jerk across the board, right? That's just, that's unsustainable as, for a democratic society, it seems to me. How's that? Yes, perfect. Does Alexis or Megan want to jump in? Sure. How could compromises be reached in a civic friendship if it's forming the base for the view of the other that could get us there? Well, so here's the beginning sort of a a philosophical sort of point. So, you know, the real hard thing about democracy, and let's not forget, democracy is messy and noisy and, you know, democracy is not, you you know, sweetness and light, you know, uh, as we all know. But democracy is not only just messy and noisy, democracy also is morally demanding in the following sense. As a democratic citizen, you have a moral responsibility to take your role as a participant in in a self-governing community of equals, seriously, you know, you've got a, you've got a duty to vote. You've got a duty to be informed. You know, we can just list all of the things that go into being a good citizen and their requirements, you know, like we, we fault people when, when they don't vote, for example, we think it's a shame. We don't, in some countries you do have to pay a fine, but not here. Now, one of the things that's particularly demanding about democracy though, is not only do citizens have to be participants, they have to recognize one another as participants. And what that means is that in a democracy, not only do I have an equal say, but you have an equal say. And here's the hard part. I have to recognize that not only do you get an equal say, you're entitled to an equal say because you're a fellow citizen. And recognizing that my fellow citizens are my political equals, even when I think their politics stink or are diluted or are malicious, 
are certainly not on the side of justice and the right and the good. But nonetheless, right, democracy says to you as a citizen, you need to recognize the political equality of your political foes, even when you think that they're deeply, severely mistaken about justice, about what government should do, about the role of government. Now, I just think that that is a, that's a big ask, right? So you can put it in the form of what philosophers call a dilemma, which is sort of a, you know, you've got one or you, you can do this or the other thing. You can't do both, you know. So here's the dilemma, right? As a citizen, it's my duty to be a participant and to take responsibility for my government. And what that means is that for, as a citizen, it's my job to think the best thoughts I can think on the basis of the best information I can get about what the right policy is, the best, who the best candidate is, and broadly speaking, what justice calls for in these circumstances. At the same time, democracy requires me to recognize that my political foes are also my equals and therefore entitled to the very same share of political power that I have. And then we get to say, yeah, but what about when my political foes seem to me to not care about justice? They're not doing the job that they should be doing. They're advocating for policies that are not based on good reasons. They didn't go look into the best. They didn't get the good information. They have got terrible judgment about who a good candidate is. They're demonstrably mistaken about things. And I think that they really just don't care that much about justice. And democracy says, right, they're still your political equals. They're not just people you get to push around. They're your political equals and so entitled to an equal say, no matter how misguided you think that they are. Civic friendship is that set of capacities that we have to cultivate within ourselves in order to maintain that stance where I have to, at the, on the one hand, be an advocate for justice as best as I can be. And on the other hand, I have to recognize that there's a bunch of people in the world who are my fellow citizens and they're entitled to an equal say, even when they're on the side of what looks to me like injustice or what I can show them is injustice. Say, so, well, wait a minute, that looks like a contradiction. Fight for justice, but, you know, recognize the political equality, the political entitlement to maintain and to navigate what looks like a conflict there. Now, all I'm saying in the book is you can't do that with politics, that, that those capacities, that the dispositions and attitudes that are necessary in order to maintain one's stance, that my political enemies are nonetheless my political equals. Those attitudes and dispositions can be cultivated and sustained only outside of the fray of politics. And again, in contexts where we can demonstrate, we can display to one another our virtues outside of activities where our political identities are, are salient. Now, just to give one example, I think this is in the book. You know, move down to Nashville, lots of cool music here. My wife and I, who also comes from New Jersey, um, started doing is just, you know, paying attention to the local music scene and, you know, going to listen to bluegrass music and still don't take myself to know a lot about the genre of bluegrass. But I will say this, going to, Dan, you might know the station in, going to the station in and sitting around, you know, basically picnic tables, listening to very high quality bluegrass music in a dive bar, <laughs> right? Where people talk about 
the songwriter, the mandolin player, you know, the conversations that you have with people who are strangers, right? It's about the genre of music. Now I've got all kinds of reasons to suspect as a political philosopher, right? That, you know, the people who are also in the room, maybe the people who are sitting at the table uh, with me, probably don't share my political ideas. Let's put it this way. They probably voted for the, the people I didn't vote for, so on and so forth. But you know what? After a long conversation with a guy, you know, who tells me in great detail about the history of the song that was just played, who wrote it, what the performer who just performed the song did that was different. I just, you know, d- demonstrating that this is a person who, I don't know what his politics are. I suspect I know, I could guess, but I don't know what his politics are. But man, this guy's got a command of this idiom of music and this genre and an aesthetic sensibility that picks up on things that I'm a musician, but I'm just not able to hear. <laughs> you know, th- those kinds of qualities of this music, right? So like, I just can't, I, I, I can't see him as a failed human being anymore. I could still see him as a political foe and I could still see him as politically misguided, but I can no longer think that his, the degree to which he's politically misguided means that he has failed as a human, as a, as a moral agent as such, as a human being as such. Why? Because I've seen him demonstrate virtues in ways that just show me that whatever our political differences are, and we still have, this isn't a way of, of smoothing over political differences. We're still going to fight over politics. The point is that, yeah, well, those fights are now going to be conducted against the backdrop of other kinds of cooperative endeavors where we get to show one another our best selves outside of the political arena so that when it comes to politics as blood sport, I'm not going to just see you as the conservative voter whose politics I hate. I might still see you as that. I won't see you only as that is the point. I mean, what I like about this, your book is, you know, we often talk about reaching across the aisle or having, and especially at the university that, that I work at, we're often talking about, you know, having unity events where this group who believes A and this other group who believes not A should get in the room and they should talk about it and they should do so in a spirit of, you know, cooperation and listening and, and sort of the, the idea here is that you're going to something magical is going to happen when you just give people reasons why, you know, you have the belief that you do or the policy preference that you do or the even though, you know, this often comes on, around hot button issues that you you might guess, whether that is abortion or uh, LGBTQ rights or the issue of, you know, is policing like fundamentally racist or or whatever it could be any any kind of any kind of really polarizing topic. I mean, what I hear you saying, and I, what I hear your book saying, is that we we can have those disagreements, but just getting in a room with our political uh, opponents is is not going to be productive for changing minds or for building the kind of civic friendship that you're calling for in the book. Right, and I would say you know you can read a lot of democratic theory especially contemporary democratic theory, across the range of disciplines that talks about democracy, where even when you have theorists who are keen to recognize that democracy is about disagreeing and about hashing out the issues and it can get hot and heated and, and you know, because there's a lot at stake and, you know, people got to talk and, and hammer it out, you know, even among people who take that general view of democracy, which I'm sympathetic with, 
there is always some germ of the idea that when you're doing democracy right, disagreements never really get heated, right? That properly done democracy means, you know, we might shout for a little bit, but at the end of the day, we all kind of just give, we hug it out and, you know, we, we see one another and we get along and we, we all get along at the end of the day. You get a little bit of this, by the way, from Joe Biden. And I just think that's wrong. I think that, no, democracy runs on disagreement. And when we're disagreeing about politics, we're disagreeing about justice, disagreement ought to be heated. I think that disagreement is, political disagreement is, of its very nature, volatile. Consensus makes me nervous as a democratic theorist. Let me put it that way. Um, And so the idea is not that we need to figure out a way to do democracy so that at the end of the day, we're all friends again in the ordinary sense of friendship, right? We all like each other. I just think that that's a, I actually think that's not a democratic ideal at all. I think that democracy runs on disagreement. What has to, what we need to figure out a way to do is manage it. And to think that we should talk to one another with respect and hear each other's side and all the rest, I'm all for it. The argument of the book is just like, that's just not going to be sufficient unless there's already a background where there are other kinds of contexts where I recognize your merits as a human being outside of the fact of our political opposition, because the political opposition isn't going away. And you might even say more strongly, that's just what it is to be a self-governing community of equals. What does it mean for me to be an equal? Not only that I'm entitled to an equal say, but that I'm also entitled to make up my own mind and think my own thoughts about stuff. And when you've got people making up their own minds, thinking their own thoughts, trying out their own ideas, disagreement is not something that's going to go away. And when it's disagreement about justice, it's not something that's going to you know, simmer at a lukewarm temperature. Justice is important. The thought then is, got to do democracy in a way that can leave room and recognize and manage heated disagreement among partisan enemies and still preserve democracy. That's the challenge. Again, you could read a lot of democratic theory. I just think they misidentify the challenge. They think that how do we get consensus given that we're already disagreeing? How do we cross the divide now that we're divided? Like, I think the idea is how do you manage the divisions, right? in ways that make democracy still viable because the divisions themselves, even if our particular divisions are not the product of rational processes and all the rest, divisions that are pretty heated are themselves what you should expect within a self-governing community of equals. Megan, I saw you nodding your head and maybe Alexis too there. Do you have a, a follow-up or just you know something you wanted to add to the conversation here? There is this like, one part that kind of like resonated with me with what you were saying regarding just how like companies would like use their platform for political advertisement, I guess you can say. And I noticed the same thing on like social media platforms as well as like Spotify or something. And people would try to, you know, guess your political affiliation with the type of music you listen to or where you go and just a part of your daily lives. And I'm just wondering, like, does that even matter when you're going into, like, a social platform? Or when you're going into a social platform, is there a way you can avoid that political barrier for those companies that are more political affiliated, I guess you can say? 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, I'm not optimistic, I should say, about any of this, right? Um, so I think that you're right, um, uh, Megan. The online world, right, the platforms, um, you know, are aimed at enriching a conception of you based on data that has to do with where your attention goes, what draws your attention, you know, what's in your history, what kinds of pathways through the internet uh, are you inclined to take, all for the purpose, by the way, you know, this is why Facebook and Twitter, you know, are, are, are free or why you can, you can get Spotify for free, right? All of this is for the purpose of amassing data, not, not maybe about you, you know, Megan in particular, but data about people within a certain age group, in a certain location, what are the other behavioral tendencies that are robust in them so that, you know, that information can be sold to who? Well, advertisers and marketers. But guess what? The guy who's doing the advertising and marketing for, you know, the car that you drive is also probably working for a company that does the same kind of work for candidates, for political parties. And so the idea that there is a way for, you know, a citizen who's read my book and said, oh, I'm going to go do this. And then there's a special way to make your path through the medium of sort of online platforms and various kinds of, of social media that sort of um, de-echo chambers the whole thing and de-polarizes the whole thing. Yeah, I don't think that's it. I think that the activities that I think are called for, the sort of non-political cooperative activities, right, are things that we have to do that we are not currently doing. I don't think it's sufficient to just do the things that we are doing in different ways, right? I don't think that it's enough to just say, hey, visit some of the web pages of the people who whose politics you hate. By the way, Cass Sunstein, the very, very good, you know, uh, legal theorist and political philosopher, uh, who's done also done a lot of work on polarization, you know, back in the early 2000s made this proposal. And he's a constitutional law scholar. So he actually did like the stuff on the law. I mean, so, you know, it's not just somebody just thinking off the top of their head. It's a well worked out view. But the view was that web pages with partisan political messaging, so Daily Coast, for example, or Breitbart, we might say, for example, uh, he said they should be legally required to carry links to the web pages of their political opponents. Now, when this came out, lots of people went nuts and thought it was a grave violation of the First Amendment, so on and so forth. I, you know, it didn't strike me as something to go nuts about. It struck me as, you know, just a, a decent thing, good proposal. But it also strikes me now as like just not sufficient. It's like there's no way to navigate the space that has been constructed for us, the spaces, both online and out in the physical environment. There's no way to navigate these spaces in a new, different way to sort of nullify the saturation and polarization effects. What we have to do is find new things to do. We have to find something to do that we don't do normally. And as I say in the book, I suggest to somebody like, I don't know, volunteer to clean up litter from Centennial Park. And somebody said, well, that's a liberal thing to do. And, you know, I said, it's a liberal thing to want to clean up litter from a park? It's liberal? And, you know, I sort of I shrugged it off and I shouldn't have. You know, I shouldn't have. I should have thought a little bit more deeply with the person. I missed out. I should have said, you know, what, what makes it liberal? 
Why is it liberal? What about it is liberal? Is it the volunteering? Is it the volunteering outside of a church group? Is it the volunteering to clean up litter when you could instead be volunteering to feed people at a soup kitchen or teach somebody to read? I mean, what exactly spells liberal about that proposal? But in any case, you know, sort of like I, I sort of, you know, fell on my own sword there. Like, well, this struck me as a nonpartisan thing to do. Like, so in the book, I say, look, you got to try something that's a little bit, you know, do a little reflection. Like, what could I possibly do that, you know, after reflecting, I can see is not just an expression of my partisan identity. What could I do that's not tied, that I won't feel like, oh, I did a good progressive liberal thing today. I went and cleaned up a park, right? What could I do? And by the way, the answer I came up with, I'm going to start going and listening to bluegrass music. That's what I'm going to try to do. And again, I say, I say, and see what happens. <laughs> if you feel at the end of the activity, like, wow, I'm a really, I'm a really good liberal for having done that. Look at that. Like then do something else if your partisan identity is being affirmed. So there's a kind of experimentalism at it uh, about the proposal, precisely because Megan, as you were just suggesting, the world around us online and physically is already constructed to put us in these partisan ruts. And that's what, in fact, in, in the case of the online world, that's what a lot of these spaces exist to do. That is their purpose, is to curate and construct our online behavior in particular ways that produces data that's sellable to marketers and advertisers and campaigns. That's what it exists for. So there's no way to just sort of change our habits in that, you know, go visit the web pages of somebody who you disagree with. So that might be a good idea. It's just not going to be sufficient. Something else has to happen, it seems to me. All right, I have an example. I went to the skate park today. So here in Abilene, there's a park just south of downtown. And it has a, I've never been to a skate park before. And I'm not a skateboarder, but our son got a skateboard for his birthday. And there were a bunch of people there, a couple of black families, some, some white kids, you know, no idea. Actually, never crossed, this didn't cross my mind. I, I didn't think to myself, oh, I wonder who's liberal or who's conservative. I was just trying to make sure my kid didn't hurt himself. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. No, and that, that's the kind of thing where, in those kinds of contexts, it might be. Now, again, there's no answer in the sense of, you know, like, whenever I give talks on this to academic audiences, it's always like, Tulis, what's the thing? I Give me the three things I need to do. It's like, you can't do it that way, right? So the thing that you're suggesting, Dan, is exactly right. It's like, well, that's a context in which you might come to see in some of the other parents, responsible parenting, caring, right? Virtues that it's like, well, if I am to find, you know, and it's not, again, the proposal is not go figure out ways to love your enemies. The thing is figure out ways to see people at their best in contexts where you can't pin them to a partisan identity. So that if you discover, right, that one of the other parents who you've seen like do a particularly responsible job of parenting or being particularly caring or conscientious, say, well, if I discover that this person voted for the wrong guy, I still might hate the way they voted and consider that person a political foe. But I just can't see the person as failed across the board because I already know this person's a caring parent, a very conscientious adult in this context where their kids doing things that are risky. And I think that's really, I mean, let me put it this way. Context where we get to see one another care for other things. I think it's really, really important to the overall 
to the overall proposal. Uh, I think, uh, again, this is my, my time as a graduate student, uh, in part working under the feminist uh, moral philosopher Virginia Held. I think that, that she's right about a lot of that stuff. But I just think, yeah, caring is like one of those contexts where we're, we are visibly, that is, observably at our best, and that people can see, we can see other people's virtues in contexts where we are watching them attentively to something. I think the skate park example is really, really interesting, where you have a group of adults whose job it is to control their kids. I mean, that's part of the job. But the other job is to care for the kids, right? Is to be watchful for the safety of the children, whoever they are. And whatever their parents are like, and whether the parent is wearing a red baseball cap that says make America great again or not, it just doesn't matter in that context, it seems to me. So I think that's a really interesting example. Let me know how it goes. Well, I'll be in touch for sure. I don't know that I want to ask this question, but I was just so struck by your chapter on civic friendship and a parallel between civic friendship and religious tolerance. And I mean, you probably know Abilene Christian University is a Christian university. We have a particular religious heritage. There are things about the place that uh, are distinctive because of that, because of that heritage. Uh, so I'm struck by the notion of civic friendship being like, like a religious, religious tolerance. And obviously in our country, we allow people to adhere to all kinds of religious faith practices or no faith practice at all. You cite religious tolerance as a parallel to civic friendship. What would you say to those who argue that recent Supreme Court decisions like Masterpiece Cake Shop have given too much deference to certain religious beliefs over others or people with no religious beliefs at all? Yeah. So firstly, I would be inclined to agree about that particular case uh, with somebody who said that the Supreme that it was wrongly decided. Now, again, the analogy with religious toleration comes into uh, the argument in the following way. So I just want to make sure that this part is clear. You know, when I, when I lay out in the book, say, look, you know, we've got to treat one another as, as equals, as, as fellow participants who are entitled to an equal say, even when we think that that imperils the chance or lessens the chance of getting a just result from the democratic process. So, well, how is that possible, right? Isn't justice the most important thing? Like if justice is the most important thing that anybody who's in error about justice ought to then be seen as somebody who's not fully entitled or not properly entitled to an equal say, because justice is the most important thing. And I say, look, if you're wondering about how this conflict, right, that democracy places us in, I think inherently, like, how can, we, how can we crack this nut? How can we resolve this tension? I said, well, look, we did resolve it in a case where you might think it was, the stakes were even higher, right? Religious toleration. Here you say, well, why is it? Like, if you think that, right, just imagine, like, lots of people think this, right? There's no salvation outside of the church. And when they say there's no salvation outside of the church, they mean a particular church. Right? They mean this one. There's no salvation outside of my church. Yeah, usually the one that they go to. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough. Yeah, funny enough, right? Uh, right. There's no salvation outside of my church. Then they often think salvation is the most important thing. What could be more important than the fate, right? The eternity of your soul. Right? What could be more important than salvation? And then, right? They also often think 
one of the ways in which I'm called upon to pursue my own salvation is to help others achieve salvation. In fact, that's part of what it is to be convicted. That is to, to have religious conviction is to care about the eternal fate of others' souls, right? Is to try to save other people. If salvation is so important, it's not just for me, it's for humanity that needs saving, right? So you can imagine... In lots of cases, it's very not hard to imagine this, right? There are lots of denominations of Christianity that say roughly this kind of thing. It's like part of what it is to worship God in the right way is to try to bring others into a state where they're better assured or better pursuing of salvation. Then you say, yeah, but somewhere in 17th, 18th century thinking about politics, we get a doctrine of religious toleration. Now, you might... You know, you might be familiar with the the view in Locke, and there are other sort of uh, political and social thinkers who sort of try to spell out the the basis for toleration. All I want to say is that in the case of eternal goods and evils, we're not talking about justice here on earth. In the case of eternal goods and evils, we've solved this in a way. We've said, wait a minute, salvation is one thing, and that is the most important thing, but Politics is something else, and the way to properly do politics is a way which the world can't can't reflect right my view about salvation. It would be wonderful if it could, but it can't. Part of what it is, and sometimes this is spelled out in the terms of dignity, right? It's like part of what it is to recognize the dignity of the person to be saved is to be ready to tolerate within some broad constraints dire theological error from the point of view of the power of the state. In fact, you know, John Locke has got a version of this that I don't think is particularly strong, but it's an interesting version. You know, Locke just says, we're the kinds of creatures who can't be compelled to believe things. That's why you have to be religiously tolerant, because coercing belief is is never going to be real conviction. Right. It's not faith at all. Yeah, that's right. Good. So I just want to say, look, in this other kind of case where it looks like it would have been harder right? To achieve the kind of, I don't want to say compromise because it's principled. You say, wait a minute, it's part of recognizing the dignity of even the person who's in religious error that I can talk to them. I could give them my materials. I can visit them and try to talk to them about the right way to worship God and all the rest. But I can't advocate for a state to come in and criminalize other religions. I can't do that. That's an insult to the dignity of the human person, some versions of this story, right? So we, we, we've got a lot of different ways of spelling out, navigating that tension. And I just want to say, we got to figure out some similar story to tell about democracy. Like, why is it, if justice is the, as John Rawls put it, the first virtues, of, the first virtue of social institutions, if it is the thing, ultimately, upon which all the assessments of a social order hangs, is it just or not? is the real question, right, about politics. Is it just or isn't it? Then I think we have to say, well, we got to tell a story uh, about democracies that say, look, even though justice is the most important thing, there are certain kinds of constraints, on moral constraints, not just practical ones, moral constraints on what we are permitted to do in the pursuit of justice within constraints, right? Again, I'm not saying anything goes. Saying within certain kinds of constraints, there is a degree of error about what justice requires that we as democratic citizens 
morally are required to tolerate. That's the role that the, the toleration stuff plays in the book. Now, the issues about particular, about the role of religion in society, about the separation of church and state, the wall of separation stuff. I've got views about that stuff too. They don't come in, I don't think they come in very strongly in the book. We can talk about that if you want, but um, that's just, all I was just trying to say is we, we, we cracked this nut in a place where it looked like it should be harder to crack. Now we just need to tell the story that, yeah, there are certain things in life, certain things that make life worth living that are too important, too valuable to be inflicted, intoned with partisan identities. Last point about this, because after all, let's, I mean, you don't have to be a historian of politics to know this. You know, the ordinary citizen knows this, right? Partisan identities are so fluid in the following sense. Like, yeah, what makes you a good conservative now is just not what made you a good conservative when I was a kid. When Ronald Reagan was president, conservatism and liberalism meant different things than they mean right now. So if our very conception of what it is to be a decent human being who's entitled to full citizenship in a democratic society is so tightly tethered to our conception of our partisan identities, then we're just saying, yeah, politics is something that happens right here, right now, and that's it. It's like, well, you tie your politics to the present, and you've got no vision of how things can become better, right? It seems fundamental. Like, neither conservatives nor, by the way, conservatism and progressivism, right there in the words, are temporal, right? They are tensed things. There's a there, there's a, an appeal to the temporal dimension of politics in the words, like, yeah, but if everything is about the politics of the moment, then nobody has a vision of how things might be different in the future, not merely in the sense that you've prevailed over your your political foes, but that in the course of politics, the fissures, the conflicts, the debates have changed because in prevailing over your foes, you've changed the politics. That's put off the table when politics is about expressing partisan identity because partisan identity is always partisan identity as i understand it today you know may 3rd whatever you know may 2021 that's what it is it's like that's a i think fundamentally impoverished and ultimately anti-democratic on anybody's view uh because it doesn't have any temporal valence to it uh which democracy has to have i think that's great i mean i it makes me just think that when it does come to any particular Supreme Court decision or any particular law, you know what you're what you're saying is we certainly have the obligation and or at least the the right, if not the obligation, to continue sort of pressing our viewpoint. And you know the Supreme Court is not over. You know it, they didn't just say their final decision on religious liberty with masterpiece, right? They can say different things in the future, and if we think that decision is wrongly decided, we should make that known, right? And we should maybe advocate for other policies that would ameliorate that, make it better in some way. But your point about the temporal aspect means that we we have to have hope in some sense that the activity of you know living in community and putting politics in its right place, but not making it you know everything in our lives, is going to give us the conditions where we can do that activity, right? And and we can see our political interlocutors as you know just more than evil people who are bent to destroy our our society that was well put that seems to be right yeah 
good good job. <laughs> well, I I enjoyed reading. I mean, the the book is the book is great, and it's um it's really thought provoking for someone who's not a specialist in in this stuff, but that students are often wanting to talk about issues like this. And well, let me let me just stop for a second and say, is there anything else that you would like to say or you know get out there? I did want to ask you about your your project that's coming out this fall. And then I usually ask people, you know, if, if folks want to follow you on Twitter, because I know you have a, a Twitter presence, you know, you can, you can share that if you want. It's mostly bad jokes. <laughs> I know. That's, what's, that's one of the great parts about it. I could say one thing about the next book, if that would be good. Great. Yeah. Please do tell us about your next project. So the next book comes out in September with Oxford University Press. It's titled Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe to the Other Side. So whereas overdoing democracy talked about the need to do non-political things, given saturation and polarization, the new book, Sustaining Democracy, talks about how we can do politics better when we are doing politics, uh, given these facts about polarization and saturation. And the book is really about the need for our political alliances, for our political relations with our coalitions to sustain democratic relations with our opposition. Because when political coalitions don't sustain, but this is an empirical claim, when political coalitions don't sustain the right kinds of relations with their opposition, those groups, your friends, right, your political alliance becomes more conformist that is more invested in homogeneity, right? not only more expecting that people are in the group more and more alike, but more invested in their alikeness, the groups then become really interested in detecting posers and fake members. And so more and more tests for authenticity uh, develop for membership in the group. And what that means is that You've got a group of people who are really interested in signaling to one another their authentic membership in the group. There's got to be a tastemaker. There's got to be somebody who sets the standards. There's got to be somebody who says, no, no, if you really are one of us, you don't only say this and that and the other thing, but you don't shop at that store. You don't listen to that music. You don't see that guy's movies. You don't cut your hair in this way, right? And so the groups not only become more conformist, they become more hierarchical, which means that internally they become less democratic. They become less invested in the group members' equality as they become more interested in assurances that the coalition is strong. And so what I say is that in order to sustain democracy for your friends, with your allies, you have to maintain as best you can healthy democratic relations with your foes. So you've got a an argument on the basis of justice, right? Because you need a coalition if you're going to achieve justice or pursue justice in society. Well, if you're pursuing justice, you might ask yourself the question we've been asking at various parts of this discussion. Like, well, why do I care what my opponents think? They're on the side of injustice. You know, the hell with them, right? Say, well, wait a minute. If you take that attitude, you're actually diminishing, you're weakening the political power of your coalition because you're making your coalition more vulnerable to splintering and factionalizing and shrinking. And when coalitions shrink, they become less able to achieve anything politically. So if you really care about justice, 
you really want to see justice done in a democracy, you have to sustain healthy democratic relations with your foes. And if you can't find democratically worthy foes, you've got to go invent them. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. All right. Well, we're definitely going to be looking for that book because um, I feel like we need it for sure. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Lee, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. And, and thanks also to our students, Alexis, Megan, and Grayson for the, the great questions. Uh, Dr. Sleese, if folks want to get in touch with you, how can they reach out to you or how can they follow you? You mentioned Twitter, my favorite social platform. Uh, how can folks follow you if they'd like to? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at, you know, my name, just one word, Robert Talese. There's also a Twitter account for the new book, which is just sustaining D, uh, the letter D. And, you know, if anybody wants to reach out, I'm easy enough to find uh, if you just go to the Vanderbilt Philosophy Department webpage, uh, my contact information. It's not difficult to locate. Awesome. Well, thanks again uh, so much, Dr. Talese from Vanderbilt University. And we'll look forward to that new book, Sustaining Democracy, this fall. This is The Annex a sociology podcast. Thanks again, Dr. Talese. Thank you.